The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever since the advent of the draft in the early 1970s, most Americans, particularly those who vote, and particularly the American bourgeoisie, are just not affected by America's wars. So the United States could go around the world destroying other people's countries, and it doesn't really redound to uh, negative consequences here. So, yeah, I don't think the consensus is fracturing. You you do get recently you've seen the rise of of this so-called restraint school. But that, from my perspective, was mostly related to the Middle East, uh, that there was a broad consensus that the United States was wasting resources and political capital and, and lives and treasure in the Middle East. But there's a lot of disagreement within the so-called restraint camp about what the United States should do vis-a-vis China, with essentially realists thinking that, like John Mersheimer, thinking that the United States should confront China and more anti-imperialist, whether of the left, the, the social democratic left or the libertarian right, basically thinking, as I do, that the United States really can't remain hegemonic in East Asia and that should be facilitating some form of a security transition. But that's still very minor in the halls of power, especially. And that's the Biden administration is just more of the same, just like Trump was, just like Obama was, just like Bush was, just like Clinton was, which is that the United States should continue to dominate the world. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 18th, 2022. Last month, the cover of Harper's Magazine declared, the American century is over. Then it asked a single question, what's next? To dig into that question, I sat down with the cover story's author, Daniel Bessner, an associate professor in international studies at the University of Washington, who marches through the history of the American century and the debate over what comes next. We discuss the two warring camps at either end, known as the restrainers and the liberal internationalists, and the stakes of their debate for the future of U.S. foreign policy and the world. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 18th. Daniel Bessner on the restraint versus liberal internationalism debate. Danny, I wanted to start where you do in the essay, uh, with the American century. So first, just to set the scene, could you tell us a bit about, you know, what is the American century or, or more precisely to your argument, uh, what was the American century? Sure. Well, the American century is coterminous with American hegemony. If you're a liberal internationalist, American leadership, if you're a critic of imperialism or on the left, American empire. But it basically refers to the era from roughly 1945-ish, plus or minus a few years, to I would say around 2016, plus or minus a few years, when the United States was really dominant on the global stage. And and I would say was on the path to unipolarity. Um, I think it's fairly clear from the historical record now that the Soviet Union never really had truly global designs. It certainly had regional designs and it certainly participated in conflicts outside of its immediate region. But I I don't think it ever had the fantasy of dominating the entire world like the United States did. 
And I also think that the United States was just more powerful than the Soviet Union from the 1970s onward, certainly, but but even earlier than that. And so the American century, uh, a coin turned by the publisher Henry Luce in his early essay, uh, essay from the early 1940s in Life magazine, was just that era of, of U.S. dominance and, and where the U.S. was basically the hegemonic power on Earth. Great. And, and I definitely want to dig into some of that history in just a bit as I uh, perhaps foolishly ask you to march us through nearly 100 years of history. But just to set the scene a bit more, um, I was really struck by your, your the title of your essay, Empire Burlesque. And I'm curious if you could just elaborate a bit about why you chose that title, you know, other than maybe a nod to your Bob Dylan fandom. And for for listeners who might be unfamiliar with terming uh, the United States as an empire, if you could you know, build some of the case around uh, sort of the material basis for, for classifying the United States and, and recent history as, as an empire. Sure. It's always funny for historians to basically learn that other disciplines don't refer to the United States as an empire because it's so common sense in history. It crosses political boundaries, whether you're on the right or on the left or in the center. Uh, basically, everyone accepts that the United States is an empire. So it's always interesting to, to try to defend what has become so common sense. But essentially, you could define imperialism in many ways. But the uh, the idea being that the United States forces other countries to do what they might not otherwise do. There are various ways one does that through literal, you know, invading and overturning the government of Iraq, participating in the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya, the Taliban in Afghanistan. But there's also, you know, indirect imperialism through economic means. Some argue that's just a form of direct imperialism, but you can think about dollar diplomacy or other forms of economic coercion. You could think about sanctions as a form of economic imperialism. There's cultural imperialism, you know, uh, uh, Americanization, Coca-Colonization, whatever you want to refer to it. So there's various means through which the United States exerts imperial prerogatives abroad. Um, Then there's also the material sources of that imperial structure, the 750 military bases that the nation currently um, maintains. Uh, There were more of those in the past, the enormous spending on the defense budget, the the fact that the United States violates sovereignties of other countries whenever it wants to. And it's always kind of amusing to me when people define that as not imperialism. <laughs> what is it? Leadership? Okay. Uh, who, who's leading? Uh, I guess you could define it as hegemony. And I, there have been, I think, debates within the political science profession about hegemony versus imperialism. But to me, you know, I mean, those are ultimately like as, as the definition of academic, as it were. Um, so yeah, the United States is an empire. And if people want to, you know, read a bit more about why historians conceive of it like that. The classic books are probably William Appleman Williams, The Tragedy of American Diplomacy, um, a a more recent book, Paul Chamberlain's The Cold War's Killing Fields. There's also a famous edited collection by, I believe, Amy Kaplan and Donald Pease titled uh, Cultures of Imperialism or Cultures of American Imperialism that you could uh, work through if you want to just get like the nitty gritty historical details. Yeah, the, the volume is titled Cultures of United States Imperialism. So yeah, this is this is not an especially controversial take within um, historians who study this. And, and in fact, and I abide by this position, I would say the United States is an empire from its very beginning. You know, expansion westward is uh, an imperial behavior, conquering uh, native tribes in violation of various treaties the United States had made. You get the War of 1898 and the literal conquest of the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Guam. 
the United States, of course, today still maintains uh, access and control over five populated territories. So there is literal territorial imperialism. But the entire history of this country is one of imperialism, first continental, then throughout the Western Hemisphere, and then ultimately global. Great. And I'd also want to plug uh, Daniel Amervar's How to Hide an Empire with especially the, the territorial claims you mentioned with, with his term of pointless empire, which we can get into. But I want to go back to uh, Henry Luce's article. What was the the claim he was making or what was he advocating for? And then what was the trajectory of post-war foreign policy in the U.S.? Again, I'm, I realize I'm asking you to, to sum up uh, quite a lot, so I'll forgive you for, for some omissions. But broadly, the trajectory you know, after the war and after the American century was, was coined. Sure. Well, I mean, to just put it simply, um, Lewis said the United States should dominate the world and that there was an almost religious mission behind this, which is something that the the, the nation has in its founding DNA, this sort of religious slash imperial prerogative. Uh, Post-1945 history, uh, so the good case, you know, the people who, who would be in favor of the American empire or quote-unquote leadership, what have you, would say that the United States ended major wars, um, particularly in Central and Western Europe, that it fostered economic gains, uh, particularly in countries that it was connected to in Western Europe and East Asia, and that it basically fostered an unprecedented era of peace and prosperity. Um, I think even from the positive case, if you look back on it, the fact that this empire was organized around consumption, um, which had an incredibly negative climate effects, uh, it puts kind of a, a dark tinge on the entire thing, even from the positive perspective, but let's leave that aside for now because you could say that people couldn't have imagined that the American populace consuming an enormous amount would ultimately <laughs> destroy the climate. I'm a bit skeptical of that claim, but let's just grant it for now. And then you have sort of the more negative case, which is that the United States did an incredible number of interventions after 1945 around Guatemala, Chile, Congo, Lebanon, Iraq, twice, Afghanistan, Libya, uh, et cetera, Syria. Today, one could say Ukraine, um, depending on how one feels about that, and that these actions, um, as someone like the political scientist Lindsay Horrock has demonstrated, had incredibly deleterious consequences. For example, more mass killings, more democratic, quote unquote, backsliding afterward, uh, the fact that the United States allied itself with countries like Saudi Arabia, which are incredibly autocratic, uh, Egypt at various times. And so there's that negative take on the American empire. And that's just in addition to the wars that most people know, like Korea and Vietnam. So, yeah, so so those are kind of the two cases that one could make the positive and the negative. I mean, the way that I view it is that the American empire was pretty good if you were living in the metropoles or, or the, the center, to put it in Emmanuel Ballerstein's terms. And it was much less good <laughs> if you were living in what was called the developing world or the third world and what is today generally called the global south. Uh, it was it was uh, much worse to be part of, the, of this global system dominated by the United States. And, and I, my, my general perspective is that people who really support the empire today pretty much center Europe and people who don't center other countries. And, and you could even just take the last 20 plus years. And I think the cost of war project at Brown University, a great resource has demonstrated something along the lines of, you know, 39 million people were displaced as a result of post 2001 wars, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think, you know, I, it's a it's a much easier case to make that that the American century was destructive to people living outside the metropole. But one thing that I found interesting in, in your piece was that you you also reevaluate uh, the track record for for Americans living within the metropole, and I think this will the answer to this will start to get at the question of of when and why the American centuries began to wane. So if you could talk about also um, that kind of paragraph you talked about how you you reevaluated 
the benefits of empire even for Americans. Sure. And I just want to correct myself. Uh, the Cost of War Project said that there were 38 million displaced, 929,000 people killed as a, a result of violence in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. And it cost $8 trillion. So just to put a, a number on that. Uh, now, in terms of your question, yeah, I mean, so what happens after 1945 is that American capitalism becomes centered around the person of the consumer. We have a consumer capitalism where, where you know, to be an American is to consume. Um, and I think that you see this in various ways. For example, you know, during COVID, the, the demand that consumption continue, the fact that after 2001, uh, Bush said the most patriotic thing you, thing you could do is consumer, or just, you know, bubbling moments where you can see um, uh, how capitalism has really become consumer-based. So what happens after 1945 is that Americans just consume like no other people in, in history. Um, today, I forget the exact numbers, but you know Americans consume an enormous amount of global plastics, of global energy, of global raw materials, and things along, along those lines. And so from just a long-term perspective, I think you could say that focusing on consumption has negative consequences. The most obvious one is climate. Um, but I think it also had deleterious consequences in terms of community formation, what people did with their free time, the the fraying of social bonds and things along those lines. Although one might might differ according to how one views the, the latter, I think it's pretty clear that it, it's bad in terms of climate. But you could also say that the, the quote-unquote American century really only lasted for the populace from roughly 1945 to, let's say, 1975. And it's coterminous with the, with the high point of the New Deal order, where the American state effectively provided forms of social welfare and benefits to its citizenry, uh, benefits that were begin to be attenuated in the mid-1970s as the United States goes off um, the gold standard, as, as the Bretton Woods system begins to transform into something that's called neoliberalism. And you get a much more individualized economic system. You get the reduction of, of welfare benefits. You get the deregulation of the economy. You get the explosion of credit. And so I, I think you could see that, you know, if, if one of the things that the empire is supposed to do besides provide psychic wages, which it does to Americans still today, they could still imagine themselves as the actors of history bestriding a military colossus. But I, I think if you look at the empirics, it didn't actually provide for most of the people uh, in this country. And, and there's an interesting shift in the 1970s, which I think we need to learn more about, where the U.S. military state goes from defending American business to defending global capitalism. And so you, you have this interesting situation, which I don't think has either been theoretically or empirically explored in much detail, where you have a, natural, a nationally situated military, this in this case in the United States, and you could add you know various Western European countries to the mix, but really the United States protecting and defending a, a global form of capitalism that doesn't benefit most of the people in the country that the military is based in, which is a unique historical situation and I don't think really comparable to what happened in the British Empire um, or other cases of uh, empires throughout history. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. And to get to get back to the, the case you're making specifically in Empire Burlesque, or, or rather the, the debate that you lay out, the grand strategy debate, how would you kind of characterize the state of play right now in U.S. foreign policy? Is there a consensus? And if not, uh, where do you see this consensus fracturing? There's absolutely consensus, and the consensus is broadly liberal internationalist, and it has been since roughly Woodrow Wilson, and, and especially since people like Henry Wallace and Robert Taft were, were basically considered politically persona non grata after World War II. Um, neo, neoconservatism, I think, is just a particularly aggressive species of liberal internationalism, but liberal internationalism dominates within D.C., and you're really not able to make a career in foreign policy unless you effectively, uh, well, first, if you can't be in the Beltway, you can make a career in the academy. But to make a career in the Beltway, I think you really have to abide by the liberal internationalist position that the United States has the right and duty to dominate the world and that U.S. domination is ultimately for the good, not only of people in this country, but for all of humanity. And I don't see that consensus really fracturing. I think for the primary reason that foreign policy has been so disconnected from the American populace for so long that you have a, a effectively groupthink within the people who actually make it in the foreign policy field. And that they're effectively all liberal internationalists. Not only that, most Americans, you know, the, the ordinary people, quote unquote, the public, the demos, uh, effectively think that it is their right and duty for their country to dominate the world. So, no, I don't think this this consensus is fracturing. Um, and that's also because uh, ever since the advent of the draft in the early 1970s, most Americans, particularly those who vote and particularly the American bourgeoisie, are just not affected by America's wars. So the United States could go around the world destroying other people's countries and it doesn't really redound to uh, negative consequences here. So yeah, I don't think the consensus is fracturing. You, you do get, recently you, you've seen the rise of, of this so-called restraint school, but that from my perspective was mostly related to the Middle East, uh, that there was a broad consensus that the United States was wasting resources and political capital and, and lives and treasure in the Middle East. But there's a lot of disagreement within the so-called restraint camp about what the United States should do vis-a-vis China with essentially realists thinking that, like John Mersheimer, thinking that the United States should confront China and more anti-imperialists, whether of the left, the, the social democratic left or the libertarian right, basically thinking as I do, that the United States really can't remain hegemonic in East Asia and that should be facilitating some form of a security transition. But that's still very minor in the halls of power, especially. And that the Biden administration is just more of the same, just like Trump was, just like Obama was, just like Bush was, just like Clinton was, which is that the United States should continue to dominate the world. So, you know, despite this consensus, which which you see still among the, the foreign policy establishment and, and among foreign policy elites, uh, nonetheless, as you hinted at, there is this restraint coalition or movement that is perhaps ascendant. Um, I think, you know, there's a wide debate on on how ascendant they are or how, how far reaching they are. I think you mentioned uh, in the past that they're, they're punching above their weight in many ways, um, but still fairly marginal. If you could just uh, once again, kind of lay out the main tenets of each of these warring camps, so to speak, both ideologically and then also sort of where the rubber hits the road, you know, what, what policies that they're advocating for right now. Well, liberal internationalists are American exceptionalists who believe that the United States has the moral right and sometimes God-given duty to dominate the world. 
they could come at that from a variety of perspectives, a more human rights perspective, a more power politics perspective, but that's essentially the position. People in the restraint camp effectively think that that the United States has done an enormous amount of damage abroad, again, especially in the Middle East, and that it should focus more at home. But but really in restraint, things begin to break down once you start talking about China, uh, which is the major foreign policy issue going forward. Um, so when the rubber hits the ground, I think you would say restrainers basically want the United States out of the Middle East. Uh, and then some want the United States in East Asia forever, and some don't want the United States in East Asia forever. And liberal internationalists, broadly speaking, probably also want to reduce, uh, I mean, they do, not probably, they do want to reduce the U.S. presence in the Middle East, but still maintain that the United States should dominate the world. And and I mean, and those are, 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 are the basic policies. But when it comes to specific issues like Ukraine, I think you see, broadly speaking, a generational divide with older people who were uh, raised in the era of the Cold War, uh, many times their parents were veterans of World War II, really believing in the American exceptionalist argument that the United States should like defend democracy and human rights abroad. And people like myself, millennials and younger, whose entire experience with the American military state has been Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, Libya, Syria, uh, the doxology being much more skeptical about American power and the ability to do things like send weapons without incurring negative consequences in the medium and long terms. To say nothing about how sending weapons reifies and reaffirms the American military industrial complex, which I think is not a good thing. You were getting at some of the arguments against liberal internationalists a moment ago. Uh, and I think you do this well in your in your piece with your reappraisal of, of the American century, uh, you know, both at home and abroad. But how do you deal with, with some of these counterfactual arguments that that liberal internationalists make, namely that you know, a forward military presence detours more war than there already is, or, you know, getting again into some of the realists like John Mearsheimer that, that the nuclear umbrella uh, deters nuclear war against, against non-nuclear states. You know, how do you, how do you counter these counterfactuals, so to speak? I mean, they're, ba they're based in theories about human nature, which I just fundamentally reject, which is that you, human beings have the natural tendency uh, or will to a sort of Nietzschean understanding of human nature, that humans have an inherent will to dominate. So I just fundamentally don't agree with that. I think human nature is much more pliable. I don't think anyone could could say, as the original realists did in the 30s, 40s, well, really in the 40s and the 50s, that they had determined what human nature was. So there's a philosophical disagreement ultimately. And then to get to get more empirical about it, you could be, what what did the benefit? Did, was Europe really going to have another war after World War II? Did it really require United States domination? When you go into the archives, did it really look like the Soviet Union was intent on dominating Western Europe or Central Europe? Does it look like, when you look at the U.S. record, if the United States is really that interested in defending human rights and democracy abroad? I, I think the answer is to those questions point to a world in which you could have the benefits that liberal internationalists say are traceable directly to the United States empire without actually having the United States empire. Again, this mostly works for the, the benefits that really occur in the metropole. And then when you look at the global South, it's not even a question. It's the United States is a rampaging animal in the global South and has been for a long time. I'm curious, um, you know, why you wrote this article and especially why you wrote it now uh, as I understand you, you went on somewhat of a, a think tank tour and, uh, you know, I want to say you visited all the think tanks, so we didn't have to. So I'm curious, you know, what you heard when you were making these visits and then, and then you know, what drove you to write this article? Sure. I didn't visit any think tank. I just read, read what they wrote. Um, I just read, read uh, as much. I really tried to read everything. I, I might have missed something, but uh, uh, as much as possible of what, you know, the major think tanks in D.C. were saying about China, CFR, Brookings, et cetera. 
And so basically what I found is that, unsurprisingly, the, the think tanks within D.C. Uh, are maintaining, or most of them, uh, you know, defense priorities in the Quincy Institute uh, representing the Eastern Camp are different. But the think tanks in D.C. for, you know, all of, all of their new rhetoric basically just want the liberal internationalist thing to keep on going. They, they continue to want the United States to dominate the world. And I just think regardless, I mean, I, I, I make the, the historical case against it. Um, which is ultimately a moral case. I make the philosophical case against it. I think th- th- these positions are are based in a misunderstanding of human nature. I think they're 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 based in a misunderstanding of the ability to manage the world. But but I also just think materially the, the material sources of American domination are no no longer what they once were. So if you look at 1945, I have all the numbers in there. But basically, the United States was like by far the dominant global power. Um, you look at 1991, you could say the U.S. and its allies were also it, incredibly dominant. And I just don't think that world is going to continue on in the future. So so it, it, regardless, of, you might disagree with my historical interpretation of the damage done by the US empire. You might disagree with my philosophical interpretation. You might say, oh, no, uh, you human beings actually have a will to dominate now and forever, which I think is pretty naive, but whatever. But even if you look at the material sources of US power, they're just not there any longer. You mentioned that there's still a pretty firm consensus around liberal internationalism. And you you also cite in your article, uh, I think, some statistics that would be troubling to uh, a restrainer who who wants the U.S. to embrace their view. This question might get into more, you know, tactics and advocacy. But, you know, what do you think the best way is to convince uh, both the American public leaders, policymakers to embrace more of a restraint paradigm? Well, I think we we must reckon with with the potential reality that that might not be possible. Um, I think there's a line in the Communist Manifesto where Marx says something uh, along the lines of either we'll get communism or you'll you'll descend into the mutual ruin of the contending classes. It's something like that. It's translated differently at different moments. But, you know, there, there's always that, that, that possibility for mutual ruin. And I think a lot of people are feeling today like we're in that world of mutual ruin because we, in 100 years, we may very well look back and say, yes, we were. But yeah, I mean, there's no easy answer. For one thing, people who were raised politically and intellectually in the era of the Cold War need to retire. We have a gerontocracy in this country. So people with new ideas have been kept effectively out of the system. People who have different historical experience that might be more germane to the problems of 2022 have been kept out of the system. So hopefully we'll see some sort of shift if that ever happens before there's total chaos. Um, Another thing to do is to engage in a generational project of education. The problem, though, is that the anti-imperialists and the left in particular don't really have the money that the center and the right does. So I'm a little little bit skeptical of that happening. But yeah, I don't think there's a clear answer about how how to get this done. You could do a type of Leninist cadre strategy where you develop, you know, a very hyper ambitious, hyper, hyper concentrated group of people who are really trying to, you know, infiltrate, you know, the long march through the institutions and they'll be able to change U.S. foreign policy. But that's always a long shot. Um, So, yeah, there's just no real clear answer to that. Right. I guess restraint or barbarism. I want to I want to sort of close with the question that was posed on the cover of of Harper's um, advertising your story. So if you, if you believe the American century has ended, then what's next? Uh, my, my guess is that the United States continues to stumble along until a country like China does something dramatic 
maybe in relation to Taiwan, maybe in relation to elsewhere, and the United States effectively just retreats from the region because it's not going to fight World War III, I don't think, over uh, over Taiwan or an, or, or an issue in the region. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's any going to, there's not going to be any sort of wise planning effort for U.S. policymakers to, to engage in what I think they should be doing, which is, again, fostering security transition so you don't just totally abandon allies and partners, or refiguring what the United States spent its, spent its money on. I mean, what they just passed a, uh, or about to pass an $850 billion military bill just keeps on getting more and more and more. Um, so yeah, no, I'm pretty I'm pretty pessimistic about things actually changing. I think we're just going to see more of the same, even though that's bad for people in this country and people outside of this country as well. Great. Well, as we reach the end here, Danny, I wanted to, to give you space to add anything you wanted. Uh, listen to my podcast, American Prestige. You heard it. Well, thank you so much for joining us and, and taking the time. Of course. Thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And while you're at it, grab some Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Karis Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.